episode 175 of the Green and Gold Rugby Podcast. I'm Rugby Reg, and it's been a oh, it's been an amazing week week of rugby uh, in Australia. Lots happening Super Rugby. Lots happening from a national level with the Aussie Sevens team, the Aussie Under Twenties team, and just a lot happening around provincial rugby in general. We're going to talk about all of that a bit later. But I know last week I promised you Rugby World Cup legends this week, and a Rugby World Cup legend I have delivered. Whew. He is the Wallabies all-time leading point scorer. He's the Wallabies all-time Rugby World Cup leading point scorer. He captained us in 1995. He was at the inaugural event in 1987. And of course, he led us around the field in 1991 from the fly-half position when we won the Cup for the first time at Twickenham. He is an absolute legend of the game, Hall of Famer for the IRB and for the Queensland Rugby Union. He is Michael Leiter. Michael? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much. Good to be uh, good to be talking to you, mate. We're obviously focusing on the World Cup winning side, but we do want to touch about on uh, your previous uh, World Cup. You obviously played the '87 World Cup, '91 as we know, and '95. But before we took a look at '1991, I want to touch on '87. And being that new event, there was a new World Cup, the inaugural event. Did it feel significant to you and the playing group? Uh, yes. Um... Obviously, not as uh, as big an event as it is on the world stage now, because it's obviously growing. Um, however, it was a little bit unknown for us all, and how it would go, and whether there'd be another one. Um, not that we ever talked about that, but it was a significant event, and um, it was something that we were uh, desperately keen to do to do well in. Yeah. And so you would have been confident, I assume, on the back of that 1986 Bledisloe Series win over in New Zealand? I think so, yes. We, I mean, during the, in the lead-up to the World Cup, if my memory serves me correctly, it was very much uh, us and New Zealand who were uh, talked about as, as, as possible favourites, I guess. Um, and we fell at a hurdle again in the semi-final against France, which was a very close match. And just decided towards the end, and um, by a Serge Blanco try. Um, so, yeah, it was a disappointing finish for us, um, particularly as then we had to go and play a, a third, fourth playoff over in Rotorua, New Zealand, which we subsequently lost to to Wales. And I guess that was a reflection on um, a number of things. One is the disappointment that we had at not being at the big show in at Eden Park a couple of days later to play New Zealand in the final. Um, secondly, we, we got a uh, player sent off after five minutes, um, so that made it particularly tough. Um, and I just, you know, I just think it was a, a, a probably a yeah, disappointment that that tournament really sort of possibilities were there, um, and a, a very good French team beat us in the semi. So it was a disappointing sort of um, event for us, but I think it you know showed that it was a potential a, a you know, an event that was here to stay. People enjoyed it. Crowds came to watch it. And we get to the stage where it just keeps going from um, uh, bigger and bigger 
the scale, um, particularly with the one coming up later this year, it's going to be a huge event here in, in, in the UK. Um, so it was nice to be part of it back then, although it was a very disappointing um, result in the end. Yeah, and, and so part of this podcast series, we want to sort of take from the past and learn, uh, get some lessons for this year. Is there anything in particular that, any learnings you took from 87, anything that went wrong, anything that should have happened differently for that team? Because it was a quality team and the All Blacks were good. You didn't get to face them. And you're right, you went very close to France. But anything that you think you, you would have changed in hindsight? I think, um, you know, with losses always comes a, a good deal of reflection. And I was pleased to say that after 91, when we did end up winning um, the World Cup here in the UK, um, there was a sort of review uh, undertaken to make sure that sort of uh, similar mistakes, I guess, weren't made to the ones that were perceived that New Zealand made in between 87 and 91. I think in 87, we we were sort of on tour, but within our own country, which made it very difficult. We hadn't really done that before, uh, where we played tests in Brisbane and Sydney, but for a long period of time, we were in Sydney and uh, Queenslanders and uh, non, let's say non-New South Welshmen were sort of away from home, whereas um, New South Welshmen were at home <laughs> and, and going about their lives in a, in a normal sort of fashion, really. So that was that was a difficult situation, and I, in hindsight, I don't think it worked particularly well. Um, we were training in the afternoon, which was completely fine because um, that's when we played the games. Yep. Uh, so the timing was good. However, that that just didn't work too well. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't the other way around when we came to Queensland, but or Brisbane. We but we were only there for a week. It was that that was a difficult uh, um, in that French game, and it was just um, a desperately unlucky um, game. We could have won that, and had we won that, I think we were probably better equipped to take on the New Zealanders in the final than the French. Uh, having sort of beaten them probably a little bit more competitive than the, than the French who'd probably played there. One of the things when a World Cup's in your home country that how you deal with it on an amateur basis, now that that's not a problem. Mm. Um, but apart from that, there wasn't really, we didn't, we didn't do a lot wrong, I don't think. Yeah, okay. Now, let's move forward four years, and we'll talk about the preparations of the team in the sec- in a second, but I was reminded the other day that you personally probably didn't have the greatest... Uh, preparation for the 91 World Cup. And in fact, uh, because it was a, a commercial conflict, I think you did a bit of work with Powers Brewing that almost saw you not even play for the Wallabies that year. How serious was that? Can you remind us? Well, it was pretty serious. I mean, it was either you, you don't, you stop or you, you're banned. Um, and that was, um, it's a rather a long story, but that, yeah. that really didn't affect my um, preparation for the World Cup. Um, that sort of happened earlier in the year, and you know, I had a reasonable amount of support from the players, etc. And I, I don't think it was ever going to get to the stage where um, my agreement with the brewing company was that they wouldn't stop me from playing yeah. for Australia. I mean, that defeats the purpose. Yes. So, um, but it was a it was a landmark moment in terms of um, players being rewarded for off-field activities that previously weren't. Um, the, in about in, in that year or the year before, I can't remember, but um, the sort of IRB opened it up to 
what was sort of semi-professional, I guess, where you could be rewarded for off-field activities as long as it didn't affect the sponsors of the various unions. And there was no contract, and I asked on a number of occasions for a contract or an agreement from the Australian Rugby Union to actually understand what this was and a list of their sponsors so we couldn't cross them, and that was not forthcoming. So the opportunity came to do an advertisement campaign for one of the rival breweries to the sponsor of the Queensland and Australian Rugby Union. And that came up, and um, and I took it because there was no reason why I shouldn't. And really what it did do was highlight the fact that the sort of anomaly of the allowing people to, to do things um, but then closing the door in another way um, because they had just about every sponsor from beer through airlines to accountancy, law firms. They, I mean, you name it, they had yeah. wine companies. and So it really wasn't sort of a... And then, you know, I looked for documentation, etc., which didn't come. So there was no reason as, a, as an individual that I couldn't do that. And I guess I made the point and and, um, and after that, things changed. Um yeah, Australian Rugby Union and Queensland Rugby Union were very prompt in getting out um, agreements that the players would sign, and everything was clear. But it was that stage where rugby was in sort of transformational sort of era, um, which culminated in '95 with the game going fully professional. But as far as a preparation for the Rugby World Cup in '91, it didn't really affect me. It was it was earlier in the year, and and in fact galvanised sort of the team, I guess, a little bit and, 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 the, and my um, relationship with other players. Ah, interesting. Uh, appropriate time to make that sort of commercial breakthrough too, given that the team was about to reach such success, which we'll talk about in a second. We talk about the preparation of the team now and one of the features of that 91 year was the stability of the team. There, there weren't a lot of changes in the 15 from you know the, the first Test versus Wales all the way through to the... Um, to the final of the World Cup, in fact, other than, you know, the odd game for Samoa and, and a couple of injuries. But it's interesting, you go back a year and those the, the last half of 90 and, and the team was nowhere near as settled. What did you... Did you... You're a senior player at the time and, and were you involved with Bob and understanding the makeup of that team? Obviously, some new players coming in 91, Rob Edgerton and Marty Roebuck and John Eels, they, they really sort of seem to galvanise the team a bit as, as long as as well as picking those combinations for and a little, you know, McCall and Eels uh, Porto, Gavin and, and, um, and Willie O in the back row and, and the front row as well, an interesting makeup of that team. Yeah, it was um, you're right, in 91 we had a very settled side which started to develop in, in, you know, a year or so before that and I guess it culminates as there are a lot of World Cup winning teams with um, some senior people, leaders etc in key positions with a lot of experience, which some of the names you've read there are, are, are very um, very key to that sort of and um, come under that banner. Um, but then bracket that with some uh, new, exciting, young talent. And you, know, you mentioned Horan and Little, um, those eels, those sort of people who went on to become great sort of rugby players um, were great then as well. But their young, their enthusiasm and their, their ability, etc., um, around the framework of experience and more mature people around them, I'm not saying they're immature, but more in a rugby sense, really uh, with a good blend within the team. Now, you add to that, it's all very well having those sort of guys in a team, but if they're into to not have had many injuries both prior to and during the tournament, 
Um, the major one, I guess, was Tim Gavin, who who didn't come on the Rugby World Cup, was very much part of the the build-up to it and was an integral or an integral member of the team. Unfortunately, didn't make it through injury. But during the World Cup, um, there was a couple of niggles, but nothing real major. Um, Nick missed uh, um, part of the Irish game. That's the real key, and it continues to be the key today from the vast majority of your squad every game in the build-up and during the Rugby World Cup. So there's a bit, there's a bit of luck and a bit of management with that. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the byproducts of that is um, your squad. You went away with a black backup fly half and David Knox, who who didn't play any rugby, and you played every minute. Uh, any insight? Was that a, a plan from the start that you'd play every game, or was it still taken match to match? I know that Samoa game took a lot more significance, considering they, I think they beat Wales in their first game. Um, uh, how would how did that end up playing out from your perspective? Um, I don't think it was ever really discussed with me or anything. Um, and had Moxie, you know, been selected in a game, um, fine. I think things have changed from things back then as they are now, um, where there seems to be a lot more rotation of players now. Um, that's probably due to the physical nature of of the game now, where it's much more physical um, collisions are a lot stronger than they were back then and we um, we tended to try and play our, our, our best team for that particular game every time we took the field and um, that's probably was the overriding my sense in terms of selection during 1991 the, you know, the best available team to beat the opposition took the field um, so Hence, um, you know, poor old Noxie missed <laughs> out, I guess. And, but he was part of the, the squad and all that sort of thing. And, yeah. Um, and there was probably quite a few other players in that in a similar sort of um, uh, role as well, playing most games. And, and others missing out. So it was just part of it. And I think that's changed a lot now, though. Now, you've probably talked this bit through, uh, uh, this aspect through a fair bit. And in my mind, it's one of the most iconic moments from a Wallaby rugby. It's this quarterfinal versus Ireland. And, you know, the story's uh, oft told. And I'm, like I said, I'm sure you've been a part of that. When Nick went off injured and he went off um, early in the half, I believe, after in the midst of sitting up Cambo for a nice try. And... Uh, how did you go about your captaincy? I guess you, you, you're an established um, leader in the team. Did you have full confidence? And I guess that last eight or nine minutes, the story is you you talked your team through it. Did you always just have that ability to know what you had to do to get the, the result you needed? Um, Nick went off pretty early in, in that game and uh, with a knee injury. Um, but I guess the overriding feeling throughout the game was that we were on top of Ireland, um, yet you looked up at the scoreboard and that wasn't necessarily the case. And then when Gordon Hamilton scored a try with five, five or so minutes to go for them to go ahead, um, there looked a distinct possibility that Ireland were going to knock us out of the World Cup. And it was a bit of mayhem, actually, people on the pitch, invading the pitch, etc., after Gordon's try and all that sort of thing. Um, I guess you can talk about you know leadership and what you do in certain circumstances and things like that, but... Actually, until something like that happens, you can't really um, get a feel for uh, you know that situation and what you'd actually do and how you would react in that situation until you're placed in it. So, I guess some you know, sometimes people uh, react in a different way, 
um, and my my overriding sense was not to uh, use um, in those sort of situations people that use a lot of negative words such as don't. Um, what's the first thing most is don't panic, don't worry, that sort of thing, yeah. which is a negative connotation. So I was very aware when I was trotting back to meet the, the guys after asking the referees how long to go, which was four minutes. So there was a constant. I knew there was enough time, so I relayed that to the team. Then I was very keen to be positive and said, this is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to kick long, I'll kick it out. Um, secure the ball and the backs will sort it out from there. Um, the one message I did give them um, in parting, which seems in situations like that, guys don't tend to, you know, if you compliment, complicate the message too much, um, they don't listen. People switch off. There's a lot going on, you know. And yep. But of simple messages, people tend to remember. So my simple message was to, you know, if you're in doubt, you've got the ball of what to do. Um, just hold on to the thing and go towards the opposition goal line because in those days the, the scrum put in went to the person the team in um, possession if they were going forward. So if we can hold on to possession, then we've always got a chance to score tries. So basically that was what we did. And I think that was the making of that team um, in 1991 when the chips were down under pressure in Dublin people all over the pitch, you know, rampant sort of Irish public and team out there and to be able to go, okay, this is what we're going to do and then to execute it with just a calm sort of, okay, inevitability about it um, was a really, I think, the making of that team and led to what was probably one of the best performances I've been involved with, um, with an Australian team, which was the first half against New Zealand a week later at Lansdowne Road. Um, in the semi-final, where it was just sort of flawless rugby, really. It was really, really good. Um, and from that sort of Irish moment, when we needed to put the put the car into overdrive, which we did, we always had that extra gear and were able to, to win matches in different sorts of ways. So it was a, it was a sort of, a, for a moment, as in my career, it was certainly a defining one and probably in a moment, moment in my career that was it you know that that was my sort of um crowning sort of period i guess but it meant nothing if the team didn't listen or or deliver which they did which was fantastic yeah that's wonderful and you talk about that new zealand performance and it was remarkable particularly that first half but but it was without being cliched it was a a game of two halves that had a lot of possession that first half and, and and two wonderful tries that we've oft talked about um but that second half defence was quite remarkable as well. I think the New Zealand seemed to have a lot more ball in that second half. And it, and it probably, in fact, I, I would suggest, given the game that played out in the grand final, led on to the performance there when, again, England seemed to have a lot of possession and, and you guys had to do a lot of defending. And it, I guess, points to that fact of yours that you, you knew how to win in different ways. Is that a fair comment, that New Zealand game? It, it sort of changed midway? Very much so. Um... Yeah, I mean, the first half was a great attacking sort of performance. We took our opportunities, we played at pace, all that sort of thing. And then um, New Zealand, the team they are, they don't, they don't tend to lie down ever, um, even though they're a few few points down and we knew they were going to come back and they were fairly ferocious in that, as we expected. And you're right, um, that 91 team had a variety of different ways of winning a game and we could run the ball, we could kick, we could 
shoot for goal. We have a great forward pack that can scrum and line out with the best of them. And then we have a defensive unit that was really good. And you know, above all that, you have to be fit, which we were, to be able to hang on and, and defend in the second half like we, we did. So it was a, it was a terrific all-round performance, albeit in two different halves. And it did hold us in good stead for the final, where we didn't expect England to try and move the ball around like they did um, because they'd shown, given no indication prior to that that they, that's what they were going to do. They'd played a very tight forward-oriented game and to this day over here, um, there's still players within that team that haven't forgiven some of their other players for, for changing their, their tactics on that day. Um, and no matter what England sort of came to us with, whether it was a forward-dominating sort of kicking game um we were ready for that and when they started to run the ball it was a bit of a surprise but we were ready for that as well and could cope with it so you know i think the team was a very good all-round team with not a huge amount of weaknesses but some great um team players in there guys that you mentioned like marty roeback and um, yeah. those sort of players um edgerton rob edgerton who were you know not sort of the glamorous sort of Campisi or Horns or those sort of players, but were an integral part to actually the the functioning of the team both on and off the field. Yeah, yeah, a, a wonderful moment. And that that brings us to, um, I guess, this year. And, and we haven't, we had the one World Cup win again in 99, and, it, and since then it's it's been dry. And we're back in England this year in the, the final, I think, 31st of October. And I guess the obvious question is, is can we do it again and, and how do we do it again? What do we need to do? We've, we've, we haven't had the greatest build-up last year and changes of coaches and a, a, a poor European tour, at least from a performance perspective. What do we need to do to, to be lifting up William Webellis come October? Well, I think from watching you know, the, the teams this year and watching most of the tour last year, I think we, the players, the personnel are there um, just getting them in the right order and <laughs> picking the right yeah. team is going to be a difficult um, thing because there's a lot of players that are very similar, um, particularly in the backs in, and in certain positions. But there's no question that there's a lot of talented ones there and, and players that are uh, make other teams nervous. Uh, our, you know, the, the big question mark is always over the scrum, uh, particularly over here and playing England and Wales and teams like that, they will test us in that position. So if we can... And I, I sense a improvement in that area. Um, and once I'm just very hopeful that that is the case. Our line-out's fine. Our defence is OK. Um, our backs are the equal of anyone if we get enough ball. So there's, um, there's a lot of hope there. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, injuries play a big role. So if we can pick a squad from um, the vast majority of players being available, that's a big thing. Um, but the key is, of course, um, in our pool, we've got a desperately difficult pool with England, Wales, and, and Fiji also, as well as Uruguay. And, and the difference between coming first and second is huge, um, let alone third. But if you come second, you almost might as well come third because yeah. if you come second in the pool, there's a, you're slated to play, I think it's most likely South Africa in a quarter and then New Zealand in a semi, um, whereas the road is much easier from um, first place where you, you know, 
tend, I think it might be Samoa or Scotland in the quarter yeah, and then right. Ireland yeah. or France in the semi. So there's a big difference. So therefore, you break that down. So beating Wales, England and Fiji is, is, is the key early yep. on to do, to do that. Um, I've got a feeling that, you know, there's going to be more than... I don't know if there's going to be an undefeated team in our pool. I hope it's Australia if it is, but it may not be there for games against Fiji and, and, and Uruguay become quite important also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's that's for me is a is a key, and um, England are going to be very hard to beat here at home, as we know. And uh, if they if they come first in the pool, they're going to be they're going to be very hard to beat to full stop because they're always at home. Uh, but I think from an Australian point of view, there's a, there's quite a few players at the moment that aren't in form that you would have thought, um, you know, who would have been tacked onto the wall as, as certainty for the team, but they're not quite in form. And I'm not overly worried about that too much because um, it's a long year and I'd like to be seeing them showing form a little bit closer to the World Cup than, say, now for the, their Super Rugby teams. I remember the last World Cup, which was in New Zealand and Queensland, did very well yeah. in terms of winning the, 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 the Super Rugby. And then there was, a, I think, a... Sort of a, 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 a Bledisloe Cup win as well, I think, and and so there was a, there was a lot of there was a lot of a lot of um, sort of hype around those performances. And having spoken to New Zealanders about it, they weren't they weren't overly worried because they tend to well, they'd prefer to have won, but um, they were looking at the bigger picture and sort of trying to peak a little bit later on. Um, so in terms of while it's worrying to see some of the Waratahs and particularly Queensland and you know, some of the other players, the Brumbies, etc., not sort of performing so well at the moment and more the sort of established test players. Um, I'd be concerned if it was about in another three months and they're still not performing. Um, that would concern yeah. me, but there is time um, to get those people sort of into form and performing well. Uh, it's just it a matter of... It's a difficult situation to pick the pick the right team, though. Yeah, and looking specifically at that and your fly half position, who would be your Wallaby ten? Oh well, that that's, that was one of the positions I was alluding to. I mean, when yeah. you look at who you've got, it, you know, there was Cooper that's been injured for most of the year. Um, will he figure? Don't know. At least he'd be fresh. <laughs> mm. um, Bernard Foley would have been sort of almost nailed on at the start of the year, but. Like a lot of the Waratahs at the moment, just spluttering a little bit. Um, but I think he's a player of class. And then Matt Gitto, um, due to the, the new regulations, has suddenly become available. Um, and he's been playing very well over here, both at 10 and 12. And he is somebody that um, will definitely figure in discussions, I would imagine. And his experience is playing over here, um, having... Um, played against most of the English and Welsh players on probably on a little bit more often basis than the, the current Australian team. Um, I think that that experience might go down very well. Um, so then you've got Matt Tamur and Christian Leofano. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of players that are, are there um, that could all be the number 10. Um, at the moment, that's, I'd probably pick Matt Gitto there. He's probably the one in the most form. Um, but that's not to say that in three months' time, as I alluded to, that he's not the player that's in form then. Um, yeah. But, you know, Foley's the incumbent, and I, um, I really like him as a player. 
And uh, uh, but on form at the moment, I I'd probably think that Gitto would be the person, but that's probably not who we'd see at start of Rugby World Cup. Has has Gitto been doing much goal kicking? Because one of the big issues with Australian rugby at the moment, or at least this Super Rugby season, has been goal kicking. No one is kicking anywhere near, you would suggest, the type of um, levels we would need to win a World Cup, given historical results. Um, has Gitto been kicking, mm. and, and, and do you think that's as big a concern as I guess I make it out to be? Well, goal kicking is always important, and uh, it's one of the concerns I know for the All Blacks as well, um, mm. you know, goal kicking. Um and it's everybody wants a, an eighty five percent goal kicker. Uh and uh you know, goal kickers are fallible. They 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 have bad trots and bad games and things like that. But yeah, Gitto's been doing goal kicking and he's, he's certainly um from what I can gather has been kicking well. But Lee Halfpenny does most of it down yeah, to right, Ron yep. when he plays and yep. he's the sort of goal kicker you do want. I mean he just doesn't miss. Yeah. Uh, so it is there, and I'd imagine that Matt's done a lot of that. Um, back up goal kicking uh, for Toulon because they don't play every game. But it is a, it is a yeah. factor. It is definitely a factor, and uh, you need and that will have a big say in in the makeup of the team yeah. because you do need that reliable goal kicker if you're if you're going to progress in the tournament. Yeah. Uh, look, Michael, we've got to wrap up, but I, I can't let you go without answering one more question that's not specifically Rugby World Cup related, and it's a bit of activity down here, at least in Brisbane lately, is the appointment of John Conley as a mentor to Richard Graham. Do you think, you know, Knuckles has not coached, at least professionally, for eight years. Can he play a role in, in, in turning the tide for Queensland Reds? Well, it's probably a little bit late for the season, um, yeah. but it's the fact that he hasn't been around um, technically means that but there's probably people there that can do that technically and yep. John can probably guide that um, with a bit of old school sort of knuckle stuff. But yep. um, I guess from what I can see, and I'm, I'm a long way away and don't know about mm. it, but I just read it this morning, um, it's probably you know using the resources that are available to the Queensland Reds to try and assist um, Richard Graham and, and his coaching staff there and also to maybe try and galvanise the players a little bit um, and to assist there. So um, I don't... Th- the, the role he's playing, I don't think, probably needs to be too technical. Therefore, um, if it's that consultant sort of role, um, it seems to me that would be the case. I don't think he's coming yeah. in to be technically too... too, too um, change a lot of things but I'm sure you'll try and assist it where you can but uh, it's more that sort of mentor helping out being with the players talking to them talking to Richard giving them some guidance etc maybe it's a it's a good thing um, but uh, it's, it's it smells like to me that you know the Reds have said right okay well who, who's around that we can try and galvanize the team a little bit and try and help out and I think that's probably more what it looks like but it's been a, a dreadfully difficult season for the Reds. And I, I, my, only looking back to the first game of the season, when you've got a team that has 12 of their starting players not available through injury for the mm. first game, you're always going to be in trouble. Um, yeah. And that's something that I would be questioning a lot, would be why did we have 12 players that weren't playing in the first game? Um, yeah. That's and, 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 you know, four games later, you haven't won one. <laughs> 
we yeah. won one. Yeah. You're always chasing the season for the rest. And we've had yeah. a dreadful run with injuries all the way through. And you think, well, something's not right there in yeah, terms exactly of the, right. the injuries and the way they're preparing and et cetera. Absolutely. Look, thanks for indulging me with that one, Michael. I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate your time. I know it's uh, you're a busy man over there, but uh, it's been an absolute thrill having you on the show in the next instalment of our Rugby World Cup Legends. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing how it all develops later this year. Good on you, Reg. Thank you very much, mate. Good to chat to you. And welcome back. This is Rugby Reg. Continuing on episode 175, a special thanks to Michael Liner there for taking the time out of his busy London day. Look, obviously the whole Skype to mobile thing didn't mm, go quite to plan and produced a few little audio challenges there. But I reckon we've got a great listen. Um, uh, an amazing person, Michael Liner, and uh, it was wonderful to have him on the show. Look, things have not gone to plan since this recording of this either. I've just finished uh, a great half-hour session with Brumby Jack and Oz Timmy talking about Super Rugby, and when I went to edit it all together, I could not find the file. So, apologies to uh, our listeners who are expecting this Super Rugby wrap, and apologies to Steve and Timmy who gave up half an hour of their time. Um, let's try and recap what they said. Look, we talked through the Reds and Crusaders game, and, and the big issue discussed was the abhorrent tackling and, and whether this was attitude more than anything else. And there's some stats that I alluded to that uh, the missed tackle rate has increased dramatically in this last three games, which to me makes me think it's more about attitude at this stage of the season. Um, a lot of criticism, criticism put at the coach, but uh, there's no doubt that the players need to take some of that on board themselves. Not saying that they, they're not trying their best, but there's there's something that's not quite clicking there with regards to that team. But what about that Crusader outfit? They have uh, really stepped up a notch, particularly against the Reds over Reds over recent years. Whether they're still hurting from the 2011 Grand Final loss, I don't know. But they have demolished us for, what, three years in a row now? And Namani Nadolo in particular has torn us apart. You think about, speak about tearing us apart, uh, the Whitelock try was unbelievable. And we're going to see highlights of that. And those Reds players that missed those tackles are going to... Wish they uh, never heard the name Whitelock before because they're going to see that try and those missed tackles for many years to come. So uh, uh, an awful performance by the Reds and uh, a real worry. There was some positive. Liam Gill was actually excellent um, for the Reds as we've come to expect over recent recent games. But uh, just far too many missed tackles, the big issue there, which how we were just down by five points at half time and ended up losing by 41 just blows my mind. It's a real shame we didn't have Timmy on to speak about the Rebels because that was a wonderful performance, their 42-22 to win over the Blues. And I guess the standout thing we all agreed on was the way the Rebels went on with the game. Just up by eight points at half-time, but they really took the Blues out in that second half with some fantastic performances. The work of their pack, in particular, their, their back row, has just been sensational this year. And Colby Fainga and, and Geordie Reid have really led the way in uh, in producing a wonderful performance for the Rebels. And, uh, and Scotty Higginbotham should be noted scoring his 31st Super Rugby try to sit up atop the uh, all-time list of points of try scoring forwards in Super Rugby. 
defeating Owen Finnegan or surpassing Owen Finnegan, which is a, a mighty performance for Higginbotham there. Uh, the next Aussie game was the Fours versus Waratahs, which was somewhat dour, but very much a, uh, I guess, what would come to expect from local derbies, particularly those involving uh, a team like the Force or the Reds that are struggling at the moment. Full credit to the Force for playing a game plan that they knew could beat the Waratahs, and and they won, I think it's three times in a row versus the Waratahs, perhaps. I think Steve brought that up, but the Waratahs will have to be fuming about how they were not able to be the better team and, and adapt to the situation which they f- should have fully well known was coming to them. Um, so 18-11 to the force there. And a special recognition to Maddie Hodgson, who has been out of the team for the first nine weeks with injuries and is back and is, what, mid-30s and, and still performing wonderfully. Uh, scored a try in every game, I think, so far, but also tackled his heart out uh, is a... A fantastic player for the force, and it's good to see him staying around for a few more years. Steve obviously took us through the uh, the the real disappointing loss of the Brumbies, 25-24 to the Stormers. Just the one point that late Christian Lafino penalty miss cost them, but uh, it actually, you know, it wasn't the deciding factor. The, the Brumbies had their chance early, and they, they didn't take it. A few refereeing queries um, to be had there, and... And uh, but a, a, a game of a missed opportunity for the Brumbies in particular, being away in South Africa and going down by one point and one that they should have won, but uh, too many opportunities given to the Stormers kickers, who uh, did a, a remarkable job of getting them all and and disappointing for Lilia Fano that it came down to that last kick. Uh, we went through the burning questions. Our burning questions were, and, and you can answer them at home: Are the Rebels the real deal? Um, Tibby wasn't getting ahead of himself, and, uh, and and but thinks they are, as you'd expect. Steve uh, was a little bit more circumspect, but is uh, was very supportive of their performance. Is the conference system broken, given the fact that the Brumbies are in third place, 33 points, and actually below on points the sixth place Bulls? And I think we all agreed that no, it's not. It it, it actually still creates a bit of excitement and. And, and expectation at this uh, this late end of the series. You, you look at how the, the Rebels, the Waratahs and Brumbies are still very much uh, in the battle to make the finals. And, and so it should be. The All teams being recognised in the finals is a, is a really worthwhile part of the tournament. And it changes year to year who's doing it. So long may it continue. Uh, we asked the question, should some 15 stars be recruited into the Aussie Sevens team considering their demise and... The very real chance we may not qualify for the Olympics now. And uh, Timmy was more, yep, let's give it a go. Let's bring in the likes of Gill or McMahon or Spate um, or even Izzy. Whereas uh, Steve was very adamant that no way do we want to uh, to try and chat. We tried that in 2006 at the Melbourne Commonwealth Games with Latho and Giddo and Scotty Farber and it didn't work. Uh, why waste it again? My next question was, should Wallaby fans be panicking about the Rugby World Cup? Uh, given the current performance of all the Australian teams. Steve's, without wanting to panic, his, his big concern was goal kicking, and we heard from Michael Liner about that, and we've seen how critical goal kicking can be in World Cups, and you look at every World Cup, perhaps bar the first one. Um, Liner was so influential, influential in 9-1, um, as was Ralph Keyes for Ireland, while we talk about it, but... Uh, 95 with Stransky and 99 with Matty Burke in those last two games, how many penalties he kicked. 
2003, Johnny Wilkinson, and, and it goes on, and it's just hard to find any goal kicker of note for Australia at the moment, which is a concern. Uh, Timmy's concern was more around some of those key questions, and do we just pick on reputation, the tight head prop, the lock position, outside back, and again, the goal kicker were his most significant areas of concern. We ran through the matches around this week, Blues versus Bulls, Reds versus Rebels, we're obviously split there, split there, um, uh, Steve was in no way helpful of splitting the difference there, uh, and uh, it's the big question is how the Reds bounce back, and uh, whether they're able to perform after their demoralising loss to the Crusaders. Hurricanes Chiefs, the Waratahs Sharks, we're all in agreement. the Waratahs should come out on fire and smash the Sharks in this one. Lions and Brumbies is going to be a real tough one. Uh, for uh, those involved. A tough encounter. The Lions played well uh, in defeating the Highlanders last week and the Brumbies got to bounce back. They got Matty Tamua going over to help them. Um, let it be said that Timmy tipped the Lions and Steve obviously tipped the Brumbies and I remained loyal to Australia and tipped the Brumbies as well. And the Cheetahs and Highlanders rounds out the round. Uh, the news was obviously we talked about the Aussie Sevens team bombing out. The Aussie under-20s went down to New Zealand in the final of the Oceania Challenge down there on the Gold Coast. The World Cup team was named earlier this week with plenty of super rugby talent, but a real battle ahead of them to take on the likes of New Zealand and South Africa and England. So let's hope the boys can do it because it's going to be a tough tournament. We'd like to see some success in that tournament soon. Plenty of, uh, I guess, Super Rugby announcements. We we talked about John Conley uh, and his new role at the Reds, but also Nick Styles being reappointed for three years and, and, I guess, effectively promoted, not to head coach, but to senior assistant coach. Brad Thorne's coming on board. Damien Marsh is a big one back from the Brumbies. Very exciting to have him there. Uh, Jack Pote-Gita is back uh, to South Africa at the end of the year. The Waratahs are losing a hell of a lot of players, and that'll be a real issue for their new coach, Daryl Gibson, next year. Uh, Jesse Mogg off to France, and Jordan Smiler also off to France. So the Brumbies losing a few. And and Timmy also wanted to acknowledge uh, Todd Loudon, who's had to step down from his role at the Rebels uh, for personal reasons, off to look after a family, which is always the most important thing. So we wish Todd well and hope the Rebels can use, uh, I guess, his inspiration to continue on their successful season. Which wrapped us up. Guys, really apologise for the shortened podcast, but I've got no doubt the quality of the liner interview will more than make up for the fact that you didn't hear us rambling on for uh, a further half an hour. Uh, in the end, I think I've managed to fill another 10 minutes or so of your time, and I'm pretty happy with that. We are back with another Rugby World Cup legend next week, I hope, scheduling per- permitting. Can't tell you whether it's into scrum half yet, or we might leapfrog into the back row. We've got to work that out. These uh, these calendars of these rugby legends are pretty full, and uh, we really appreciate any time they're giving us. It's been remarkable so far, and uh, we hope you're enjoying it enjoying them let us know and uh and uh, give us some feedback in the comments section to see yeah, let us know if you are enjoying them and that's it for the week guys uh, fantastic week of super rugby coming up ahead some really exciting games uh one local derby plenty of premier rugby on we're edging closer to the world cup to international rugby plenty happening so get out there enjoy it and once again uh thanks to steve and timmy for your time I hope I uh, covered off on your points and arguments well, and, and thanks for tipping the Reds, boys. We'll speak to everyone next week. Yeah, right there, right there.